Let's read together from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So our passage this morning begins by speaking about being born again. The concept of being born again is a radically important Bible concept. It's a description of salvation. It's one that is, often makes people uncomfortable, and so they shy away from it. Asking someone, have you been born again, they might have no idea what you're talking about. So we're going to talk about this this morning because it is very important and not something for the past, but for something now that we understand the need of being born again. But before we get into discussing this being born again and what it says here of us being caused to be born again by the work of the Lord, I want to look at some of the other descriptions of salvation for the sake of making a point. Because the salvation of God is described in the scriptures in many different ways. Because the work of the Lord in our heart is so great and so multifaceted that it can't be uh, summarized in just one way. So it's described in many different ways for us to help understand what is going on with the Lord working in our heart. Well, the main word for what God is doing in our hearts is salvation or to be saved. Sometimes people are even uncomfortable with that. Have you been saved? And people are like, saved from what? And that's the right question to ask. Saved from what? Well, you're being saved from the wrath of God to come. And many people are very uncomfortable with that. What are you talking about, the wrath of God to come? Well, God is a holy God, and he will judge sin because he is just, and he will not allow the rebellion of mankind to go unpunished. There will be justice. Except the Lord God, by his grace, has sent Christ Jesus, his son, that he might bear in his own body on the cross the punishment for our sins, that by grace we might be saved. And so the the description of what God is doing for us in salvation is that we are saved by grace through believing in the cross of Jesus Christ. So salvation is described in other ways in the Bible. It is also described as reconciliation. I want to read something for you from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Reconciliation is an interesting way to describe the salvation work of the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Verses 17 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. So it talks about our old self, our new self, and the idea of God reconciling us to himself. So reconciliation is the idea of a a relationship being broken, there being division, and the need to make peace between the two warring parties so that they can have relationship again. And always in reconciliation, there is one party that comes to the other to initiate that reconciliation and begin the work of that relationship. And as it is very clear here, who through Christ reconciling us to himself. So God is the initiator of this reconciling relationship in that while we were enemies to God, he comes to us seeking reconciliation. So salvation, reconciliation. If we look just a little bit down in 1 Peter in the same chapter, we see in verses 18 and 19 the comparison of our salvation to a ransom. So verses 18 and 19 in 1 Peter chapter 1, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the idea of ransom is something that we all can, can grasp, the idea that a person or is being held against their will to, to something that is, uh, they cannot escape from. And they have to be released from this bondage by someone else, by a price paid. And so the price that is paid for our salvation is not silver or gold, as Peter is very clear. But the, the price that is paid for our salvation, for us being freed from the bondage of sin and death, is the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This speaks to the substitutionary atonement of Christ Jesus, that it was his own body, that it was his life that was paid as the ransom price for us to be freed from the bondage of sin and death. And so reconciliation, ransom, other ways that we are described and the work of God is described in our salvation, fourthly, is that we were blind not able to comprehend God. Blindness is not poor sight. Blindness is blindness. You, you can't put on a pair of glasses and see better. You are not able to see. And so the idea of describing the lost as blind is that they are not able to comprehend God. They're not able to understand or see who he is. In First, Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, it talks about this. Paul writes about this about those who are lost being blind towards the things of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So it speaks of the work of Satan against unbelievers, blinding their hearts and their minds so they cannot comprehend who Christ Jesus is, who is the image of God. Verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. 
So into this darkness, into this blindness, there is the glory of Christ Jesus, light shining into darkness, out of darkness, and the light illumines the darkness. And so it is the work of Christ Jesus to take the blind and make them see. We see this some in the ministry of Christ Jesus where physically he takes blind people and makes them to see. But this is an analogy of something much greater happening, which is the spiritually blind becoming spiritually able to see or able to comprehend who God is and understand him by the work of the Lord. So in salvation, we see reconciliation, ransom. We see the blind coming to see. Fifthly, the dead coming to life. We'll read uh, Ephesians chapter 2 here in a little while. But it's very clear. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. The scriptures can say many things. They could have said you were very sick in your trespasses and sins. You were mostly sick. But no, it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And we understand what it means for someone to be dead. It's like a, a person that's blind that cannot see anything. A dead person has no life in them. They are not able to do. They are not able to respond. And so we are, in our sins, described as dead. And Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of us being made alive by the Lord God. Sixthly, we are described as naked, which is something that speaks to shame and poverty. Uh, there's many different places in the New Testament and especially in the book of Revelation where it talks about us coming as if we were naked, having nothing to offer to the Lord at all. A place of, of nakedness means you literally have nothing to offer to anyone, and even in your current state, you are ashamed of the state that you're in and would rather run away and hide. But what the scriptures say is that the Lord Jesus comes to us and clothes us with his righteousness so that we need not be ashamed before God, that the righteousness of Christ comes and covers us so that we can instead stand before the Lord and rejoice in his presence because we are no longer naked. We have been made children of God. We have been welcomed into his kingdom even though we had nothing to bring with us. And I would argue lastly that there is much language in the New Testament related to salvation of inside outside language. Those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. Those that are inside the fellowship of the church and those that are outside the fellowship of the church. And ultimately, as it's very clear in the last chapter of Revelation, those that will be inside the kingdom of God and those that will be outside. And so this language is sobering. And how is it that we enter into the kingdom of God it is not a work that we press our way into. We are called friends of God. We are given community. We are granted citizenship in heaven. For God is pursuing and seeking after us. And so the point that I want to make in bringing all these different descriptions to bear along with being born again, which we're going to explore much more here in just a second, is that in each one of these descriptions of salvation, God is the one who is acting first upon us. God is the one that is coming toward us and is for us, and he is the one that is initiating the act of salvation. It is by grace, it is by love that the Lord Jesus is acting upon us. And so the initiative is with God. And being born again is no different. It is the same. All of these descriptions are in the same vein. 
So verse 3 says that he has caused us to be born again, speaking to the initiative of God first in us coming to spiritual life. Well, being born again is a second birth. The first birth, as it speaks of in John 3, you can go ahead and turn to John 3 because that's where we're going next, but uh, in John 3, Nicodemus doesn't understand because the first birth, we all understand, our first birth is a physical birth where we are born into the world and our physical life comes uh, to pass. The second birth, or being born again, is being born spiritually. Because though we are born physically into this life and we have physical life, we are spiritually dead. Spiritually, our heart has no communion with God. We are naked, blind, uh, unable to come to the Lord, uh, under the bondage of sin and death. All of these analogies of salvation, we are on that lost and dying side of these things. And so in John chapter 3, Jesus speaks to a man named Nicodemus about this spiritual concept. And Nicodemus was a spiritual leader in Israel, but he did not understand what was going on here. So let me read John chapter 1, I'm sorry, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So I want you to see two words here that Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless and cannot. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. These are exclusive words pointing to the reality that we must be born again. There is a reason why after the Reformation, every great evangelist that sought the souls of men and women and boys and girls pressed for new birth, that you must be born again, personal conversion. George Whitfield, um, Billy Graham, constantly calling for people to be born again, the same message that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus here, because they realize the gravity of what Jesus said right here. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so it's not a matter of degrees as to who is better or who is worse, but who has received new life from Christ? Who has passed from spiritual death to spiritual life? And those that still remain in spiritual death will never enter the kingdom of God. And so being born again has to do with a change of nature. Being born again has to do with a change of nature. We begin, though we are physically alive, our soul is under the wrath of God. We're described as children of wrath, under hearts of rebellion. Uh, in the Old Testament, called a heart of stone, that no matter what is said to us about God, it's like pouring water over a rock and just nothing seeps in. We are dead, we are blind, we are proud, we are separated from God. And the point of salvation begins to come when by the work of the Holy Spirit, we understand that that is our condition and that we are not right before God. And so the change of nature has to do with being changed from that terrible state 
to becoming children of God, loving God, seeking after God, alive in Christ Jesus, comprehending who God is and seeking after him that we might know him brought in, called friends. It is a radical change, not a little bit of change, a radically significant life-altering change that changes forever the trajectory of our life. And so I want to keep reading in John chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born That verse says he has absolutely no idea what Jesus is talking about. And when you talk to people about this, don't be surprised when they have the exact same response as Nicodemus. They have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again of water and of the spirit, which has to do with physical and then spiritual birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So when you see that phrase, Jesus is very clear. Flesh begets flesh. The Spirit begets Spirit. So the the being born of the Spirit is that we were spiritually dead And only the Holy Spirit of God can give us spiritual life. So something that is dead physically cannot give spiritual life. Only a living mother can give life to a living child. And only the Holy Spirit in his spiritual life can give spiritual life to someone that is spiritually dead. But Jesus speaks to the mystery of the workings of the Holy Spirit in salvation. He speaks of it like the wind blowing where it will. And we don't know, let's see, the wind, verse 8, blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So we see the work of the Holy Spirit around us in people's lives, but often we're not quite sure how it got there or what the Lord is going to do next in someone's life. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We are born of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual life comes to us through the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is not predictable. And the Holy Spirit does not tell us, this is what I'm going to do next, and this is what I did yesterday. Instead, we are called to walk by faith, believing in the work of God and trusting in His work and rejoicing when He does work. It is God's work of new birth that changes our nature. And by this new nature, we choose to respond by faith to God. A free choice in both cases, but according to our nature. So I want to talk about our nature a little bit. This is a very important part of this conversation. Because when God changes our nature and we are caused to be born again, we will always respond in real and authentic faith. But the person over here that is not born again, they are also choosing. And they are choosing to reject the Lord because of the nature that they have. And so what is nature? Let's talk about cows and lions for a minute. Because cows and lions help me understand nature and the nature of a thing. 
So you can take a group of grazing cows and you go out there and you take a big juicy steak and lay it down in front of that cow and that cow looks up at you with big dumb eyes and like, what is that? And like, why are you bothering me? And push it aside and keep, keep eating the grass. And you could work and work and work to try to train that herbivore, which is why it's called an herbivore, to eat that steak, but it's not interested in that steak. Why is it not interested in that steak? Because its nature does not eat meat. That's the nature that it has. And you can take the same thing, a big lion sitting in the midst of a field full of grass, and it will never start grazing. Because its nature is not one to graze. That's not what it does. And you would have to change the nature of that animal to make it want to eat grass. And so similarly, it is with the lost and those who are born again. Every one of you, especially those of you that came to salvation later in life, know that before the Lord worked on your heart, you cared nothing for the things of God. Someone may have invited you to church a thousand times and put a Bible on the table right in front of you, and you're like, not interested. Thank you very much. Because your nature had not been changed. You cared nothing for the things of God. And it was only when the Holy Spirit blew in, as it were, and worked upon your heart and brought spiritual life and conviction. We talked last week about the work of the Holy Spirit as a convicting work and made you aware of your sins and who you were and what God was, who God was, began to open the eyes of your heart to comprehend the salvation of Jesus Christ, that your heart began to change. And because of a change of heart that God reaps in you or works in you, I should say, you then respond by faith. Uh, we always must respond by faith. The scriptures tell us very clearly that salvation is by grace through faith. There's never been a person and never will be a person that comes to salvation without authentic faith. And it is an authentic and true and real choice. But it is one that is made after the Lord has changed our hearts by the new birth brought to us by the Holy Spirit. And so I understand that this may be something very different than what you have heard before. But I tell you that I can only teach you and preach, you what I, preach to you what I see here in the scriptures. And I would challenge you and do challenge you. If you want to speak about this, I'm glad to speak about it as much as you would like. But you must come with the scriptures and, and bring an argument from the scriptures as to how it is that we weren't really dead we weren't really blind. We weren't really in a state of bondage needing ransom. We were actually only partially in all of these things. And we were actually able to see a good bit. And we're able to respond a good bit. And we're actually able to free ourselves a good bit. And that all these descriptions of salvation are not really accurate. Really, it was me that came to God first. And then God responded to me. And that's how I came to my salvation. I do not believe that is the way that the scriptures present our salvation. And so how does this happen? Actually, look, I want to read uh, Ephesians chapter 2, because Ephesians 2 is very important here. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. Yet another passage related to this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love... I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong... I'm in Philippians. <laughs> Like, that's not the right verse. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. A powerful passage on the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I would ask you, how does this happen? What, is the, what are the means by which the Lord works this salvation? And the means are very, very clear. It is by preaching the gospel, and it is by evangelism that these things come to pass. The Lord God has ordained that something happen, but he has ordained a means by which it will happen, which is why I'm up here this morning, by the way, preaching and teaching to you this morning. It's why we go out in evangelism to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who are lost. There is a means ordained by God to accomplish the end of God. There has never been a person ever in this world that has come to salvation without the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord uses the preaching of his word. He uses teaching children Bible stories. He uses uh, small group ministry. Every way in which the gospel might go out to another person, the Holy Spirit uses the gospel of Jesus Christ and by that helps us to know who God is, who Christ is, what has happened that we might then respond by faith and believe in these things. And so if preaching the gospel is so important, I would ask you this morning, what am I seeking to accomplish this morning when I am preaching to you? I think that's an interesting question. And maybe I think many people don't think about that. What am I trying to accomplish here this morning as I preach to you? Because I absolutely do not believe that I can make your heart change. I cannot, we've just talked about nature. If you came in here as a hard-hearted, rebellious sinner, I cannot change your heart. I cannot convince you to love God. If you came in here with a heart full of anger and hatred towards God, I cannot raise the dead or break the power of sin in your life. I cannot do it. But the Holy Spirit can, and he will do it by the preaching of God's word. And I, I want you to understand a little bit more about that, because if it was up to me, already I, I am... This is a terrifying task, by the way. There's a lot of people in here. There's going to be the same number of people in here later. And every week I leave here, I say, I could have said this better. I should have said that instead of this. If only I had had another hour or so to prepare, maybe I could have had a better illustration. It is, this is an imperfect work in every possible way. And anyone that takes the salvation of the soul seriously and thinks that your eternal destiny before God, heaven or hell, relates to whether or not I put the right illustration in here or not, is absolutely terrifying. I could never enter into ministry if I felt like the work of your salvation was related to my convincing power. It's not. It's related to the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. 
but he uses a weak person like me to do what an old pastor friend of mine used to say, the Lord takes a crooked stick and will strike a straight blow. And that's amazing. It's good. It's a good old country illustration, but he does that. And he takes the imperfect preaching of imperfect people and uses it by his perfect spirit to apply it to your heart and bring you to salvation. And this is a joyful, joyful thing. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. Only the Holy Spirit can remove that veil and bring new life to the heart. And he can, and he will, and he does, because Jesus Christ came to save sinners. So if we go back to John chapter 3 briefly, and we look at verse 10, it's an important verse. He said, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Lord Jesus just calls him out. He just doesn't understand what's going on. He was not yet born again. That's why he did not believe these things. He didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. He was still blind. He was still uh, deceived. But yet, this conversation was part of the journey. Later, Nicodemus comes to salvation. Later, Nicodemus is the one who goes in great courage to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus and in love embalms the body of Christ Jesus. So Nicodemus does come to faith, but at this point, he has not understood what is going on, which is the most perfect illustration of this. A person who has devoted his life to the study of the Old Testament, and he doesn't understand salvation. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit has not worked upon his heart yet to help him understand these things. And so he doesn't understand. No amount of study could change him. He had to be worked on by the Holy Spirit. And yet the, the Lord comes to him. The Spirit comes to him and changes his heart later. So what I want you to see, though, is that there is a progression to these things. Most people's testimony or their salvation story that I hear is not just I walked in the door, I heard the gospel, bam, I believed. Like there are some of those out there and that's awesome. But most of them are much more of a progression, a longer series of conversations where people hear the gospel and go back and forth and there is a convincing of the heart and a, a convicting work of the Holy Spirit that takes place over time and so it was with Nicodemus. But in 1 Peter, Peter is writing a letter to the churches, to those who have come to Christ Jesus and are in salvation already, and he is speaking to them about how they came to salvation. And so one of the things I want you to understand this morning is that the understanding of how we came to salvation is a secondary doctrine, meaning it's something that we come to later through maturity in Christ. What is primary, what is the most important message, the essence of the gospel is who is Jesus and what has he done for us? When we go and share the gospel with children and our lost neighbor or just anyone, we begin with who was Jesus and what has he done for us? And we do what we're commanded to do by Jesus, which is to call that person to salvation. We tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ and we call them to believe. And we leave the working of the Holy Spirit to who? To the Holy Spirit, to do what he will, because we can't change this person's heart. We're not indifferent towards that person. We pray for them. We seek them. But we also then pray for the work of the Holy Spirit. We, we've all, I hope that you've done that. 
that you've prayed for a lost person. Oh, Lord God, I've talked to this person, my child, my neighbor, my coworker, so many times, and I pray that you would soften their heart, that you would change their heart, that they might believe these things. Because you realize after a certain point of time, you can talk to your blue in the face and you will never be able to change them. Until the Holy Spirit does a regenerating work, until they are born again, they will not respond in faith because their nature has not been changed. And you may have never heard it framed like that, but this is the way the Bible frames it. And so I want you to understand it. But how is secondary to who Jesus is and what he has done. And so I understand there are many good Christians that disagree about this how part, and that's okay. What we must agree on is the gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done, and that we are seeking after the lost souls of men and women and boys and girls. And so I ask you this morning, have you been born again? Have you come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit? And have you responded to that conviction? Have you believed that Jesus is Lord? Not that he is just a good person or a teacher or the man upstairs or something like this. But that you have believed in Christ Jesus as he is taught and spoken of in the scriptures. I believe that you know whether you have believed in Christ Jesus or not. As you sit here this morning... You know whether you have put your faith and trust in Christ or whether you have not. And I call upon you to believe, to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit by faith and believe in Christ Jesus. And as we're going to see here shortly, be baptized. Openly proclaim that Jesus is Lord to the world, to those who are around you. Let me see where we are on time. Oh, boy. All right, I'm going to say one last thing, then we'll keep going next week with this. The second part of verse 3 This happens through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This new life that comes to us, comes to us through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The scriptures describe Jesus as the firstborn from the dead, which means the first to overcome death, never to die again. And in in his resurrection life, you and I might have eternal life. The whole idea of eternal life is impossible without the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But Jesus has risen from the dead, and he has risen from the dead to offer to you and to me eternal life that we might never die. And we'll see as we talk next next Sunday about this beautiful inheritance that we have in Christ, an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance kept in heaven, guarded by God through faith. This is not a prosperity gospel. The Bible does not teach that when we come to Christ, we'll become wealthy and powerful in this world. The salvation of Jesus Christ is about something so much greater than that. It is, in fact, that as we'll see in uh, verses 6, that through trials we will live in this life, that our faith may be tried and we might come out of the other side in steadfastness into eternal life, into heaven. Our hope is in heaven, in eternal life, a resurrection life that comes to us through Jesus Christ. And so I pray for you, uh, brother and sister. I I don't know uh, where you are on these things today, but if this troubles you, I would encourage you to come, ask questions. I I stay after every service until the last person, or if you want to email me or call me, we can continue to discuss these things to help you understand a little more as to what God is doing in his work, the work of his spirit in our hearts. 
Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for this. We thank you for new birth, that we must be born again. The life of the Holy Spirit must come to us. And we thank you, Lord, for what you have done to bring new birth into our lives, spiritual birth, whereas we were physically alive, but we were spiritually dead. That you quickened our hearts and you brought life to us that we might respond to you by faith. Lord, we pray for those that are lost. We pray for your grace and your mercy to be poured out upon the people of this congregation and that you would make our efforts in preaching the gospel and evangelizing effective, that we would go out and share Christ with the lost and that you would do the work that only you can do to bring them to yourself. Lord, we pray for revival We pray for a great increase of your church. We pray for a spiritual awakening in our time. There is nothing by law, nothing by politics, nothing by education that can reverse the corrupt nature of men and women. It is only a work of your spirit, and we pray that you would do it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.